Thank you, Keith. As we continue in our Summer of Psalms, this is the psalm that we'll be looking at today. Psalm 95 is actually the first of a series of uh, psalms that follow through to Psalm 100, which focus on worship. The joyful adoration of the Lord as the supreme ruler of creation and the covenant God of Israel. We don't know who wrote the psalm, but uh, it's a psalm that urges us to offer thoughtful worship, but it also brings with it a warning. It's a psalm that begins with praise and joy, but as you notice, it doesn't end with the they lived happily ever after ending. True worship is grounded in biblical belief, and we'll discover that as we dig into this psalm this morning. True worship is focused on God. And as we uh, come together, it's not so much, and as we worship, it's not so much what we get out of it. Rather, it is centred on what we give to God. So before we look at the psalm, please join me in prayer. Father, you have given us your word so that we can be instructed, challenged, corrected and encouraged. As we consider this small section of your word, help us to hear, to understand and respond to what you are saying to each of us today. Amen. I wonder whether there have been times when you've been uh, driving in the country and you've come around a corner or you've crested a hill and there you've seen this amazing vista opening up before you. You're absolutely blown away by what you see. And so you draw the attention of the other passengers in the car to it. And they give a quick glance and an acknowledging grunt and then they bury their heads once more in their phones. And you feel somewhat flat. I think it's true to say that it's not only seeing the scene that makes you so excited, but also the fact of being able to share it with others. And that's what completes our enjoyment. And so as we consider today's psalm, we discover that our delight in the Lord, our pleasure in what he has done for us, our gratitude for the wonderful blessings is incomplete until we express that in gratitude, that pleasure, that fellowship with others. That's why the psalmist begins by inviting God's people to worship the Lord together. He begins, come let us sing to the Lord. Such united worship uh, completes the way we express our relationship with God. And I guess this is one of the things that many of us have missed over these last couple of years. The regular opportunity to come together in united celebratory worship. The tech guys have done a great job in bringing the services to us in our homes. But there's something about coming together 
in worship. And that's why many years later, the writer, the, the writer to the Hebrews warned us against failing to meet together. Worship is a collective thing, and we'll discover that more as we look into this psalm. The first two verses of the psalm remind us that worship is expressed through rejoicing. The psalm begins, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. Let us sing. Our worship is to be vocal. God longs for us to sing out to him. And it's not easy to sing with joy quietly, is it? You know, when a footy team wins and they sing the club song, it's, it's not in a whisper. They're excited because they're one. And we are to sing with thanksgiving and songs of praise. In fact, he goes on, he says, let us shout joyfully. I've been watching the tennis and see normally very reserved people getting very excited, particularly when they're an Aussie playing. What do they do? They shout, they cheer, they spur the player on. Unfortunately, I also do some booing. Their enthusiasm for the, for the player knows no bounds. And it's the same at the football, isn't it? So I wonder why some people don't feel so easily moved to shout joyfully for God and to cheer him on. It's because we don't, is it because we don't delight in who God is and what he has done for us so much as when perhaps our team wins? I'm sure you recall when the Israelites entered the promised land and were to conquer Jericho. Joshua and the people marched around the city and then Joshua called them and he said, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And so when the people heard the sound of the ram's horn, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. To me, all of this suggests very vocal praise. Is our worship so alive and vigorous? I'm not suggesting that we must always sing loud in, loudly in order to, to worship in a biblical way. Because even in the Psalms, we learn that worship can be expressed in other ways as well. And later in the Psalm, even, we'll discover that. But as I suggested earlier, there's a danger of judging worship by how it makes us feel, on what it does for me. But even though the writer uses different names for God, he reminds us that true worship is focused on God. And this is what he moves on to, to remind us of, that worship is God-centred. We're to sing to the Lord, or to Yahweh is the Hebrew word. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh is the God who entered into that special covenant relationship with Israel. At the heart of that covenant was the promise of God's presence, God's protection and God's provision for his people. And so the psalmist says we are to sing to him 
for his covenant love. But then he urges us to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And the picture of God as the rock sees him as a, sees him as a fortress, as a place of security. To worship God as the rock points to him as being actively involved in our daily experiences and the realities and difficulties of life. As the rock of our salvation, we have a picture of a God who intervenes to help and deliver his people in the here and now. For Israel, this was seen in deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. For those of us in the years since Christ, we have a greater appreciation of God as the rock of our salvation. For he has delivered us not only from physical bondage, but from our sins. Verse 3 says, The Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The sea belongs to him, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land too. The depths of the earth were associated with the underworld. The mountaintops were places where the gods were considered to dwell. The sea was a, a picture of of chaos and instability. And yet the psalmist states quite unequivocally that these extremes belong to God who holds them in his hand. He is superior and sovereign over these realms and so we are to sing his praises. But then the psalmist brings it down to earth as he reminds us that this great God is also our shepherd. We are the people he watches over, the, the flock under his care. To me, that suggests provision, concern, closeness, personal care. The one who holds the world in his hands is also the shepherd who holds you and me in his hands. Remember what Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. And this is the God that we have come to worship. And so in these opening verses, we, we have the what, why and how of worship. The what is to sing to the Lord. We are to shout joyfully. We are to come before him with thanksgiving. The why of such praises is because God is the rock of our salvation. The great God, the great king, the, the maker, our shepherd. The how is to do so in reverence and submission. And that's what the writer turns to next because he reminds us that worship is also expressed through reverence. Whenever we see a picture or a video of someone entering the presence of Queen Elizabeth, we see them bowing to her. They are acknowledging who she is and what she represents. There's a sense of awe 
as someone comes into her presence. And so the psalmist reminds us that not only do we enter God's presence with joyful praise and with shouts of praise, but we must also come with a sense of reverence and awe. As a community, the worshippers who celebrate their God with loud praises because he is creator also bow before him because he is king. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker for he is our God. We are the people he watches over, the flock under his care. Bow down, kneel. To me, these words suggest humbling ourselves before God. In worship, we are in the presence and the creator and ruler of the universe. And yet at the same time, he is our God. The God, this God, the indisputable God of the universe, is the God who has a personal concern for each one of us. And we are to worship him. Of course, Christians living this side of, of the Christ events, we've got even more reason to bow down in worship, haven't we? That's because of what God has done for us in providing our salvation through Jesus Christ. Surely that gives us even greater reason to sing and to shout joyfully. And so the psalmist calls the community of worship to celebrate God loudly because he is creator, but to bow before him in reverence as king. But there's another aspect to worship which some of us may not think of as worship. True worship is a two-way process. Whenever we come to God, we must expect him to speak to us. Yes, we can address God in joyful praise, but we must also let him address us because that is an aspect of worship too. Worship involves listening to God. And so the concluding verse of the psalm pulls us up very sharply. They begin, if only you would listen to his voice today. The message translation expresses it in this way. Drop everything and listen. Listen as he speaks. Don't turn a deaf ear to God. You know, our services can easily become occasions when we, we sing our praises to God, when we speak to God in our prayers, when we hear someone express their views about God in the sermon and yet provide little opportunity to allow God to speak directly to us from his word. In earlier years, some believers spoke of the word of God pure and the word of God preached. And even as people who claim to be people of the book, we can often and very easily have too little of the word of God pure. Listening to God's voice isn't hearing some mystical inner voice. We hear the voice of God as we read of his acts and his words recorded for us in scripture, applied to us 
by the Holy Spirit. And to help us grasp the point, the psalmist illustrates this from Israel's own recorded history. You see, worship is not a matter of pizzazz or warm fuzzies or sentiment. It involves listening to God and responding. And this is the final section of Psalm 95. And we find a a marked change in tone. The psalmist changes tack. He moves from praise to a prophetic warning. He says, the Lord says, don't harden your hearts as Israel did at Meribah, as uh, they did at Massah in the wilderness. For there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw everything I did. For 40 years I was angry with them, And I said, they are a people whose hearts turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. We call to listen to to God. To really listen to someone, it should lead to a response. To really listen is to pay attention and obey. Those of us who have children know that they will often hear but not respond. And I think some husbands do the same thing. Real hearing leads to a response. And so the poet warns his readers that they can worship God with praise but fail to respond to what he says. As I said, he he illustrates this with an example from Israel's history. God had miraculously delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He overthrew Pharaoh's pursuing soldiers. And as a result, the people sang praises to God. And that song of praise is recorded in Exodus 15. Soon afterwards, we read in Exodus 17 that they ran out of water and they began to complain. They began to quarrel with Moses. They began to blame God for putting them in this situation. They even wanted to go back to Egypt. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? God told Moses to strike a nearby rock and water gushed out to meet the people's needs. And Moses called that place Meribah, which means quarrelling, and Massah, which means testing. And again, Massah is mentioned in Numbers 20, when some 40 years later there was no water, and again the people complained. And so Massah and Meribah refer to events at the beginning and ending of Israel's time in the wilderness. This suggests that this kind of conduct of Failing to hear God, failing to respond to God was repeated many times over between leaving Egypt and entering the promised land. They questioned God, they challenged God, they blamed God. And the consequence of their rebellion and disobedience was that the entire generation, over 20 when they left Egypt, 
missed out on the blessing that God had for them. They did not enter Canaan. Yes, the people praised God when things went well. But when the going got tough, they faltered. And so the psalmist pulls up sharply those of us who would worship God with the warning, if only you would listen to God's voice today. That was the message that the psalmist gave to the readers of his psalm when he first wrote it. God's word to his people in the past came as a warning to those of the psalmist's contemporaries. This was God's word to them in their today. Do more than sing praises to God. Be ready to hear God's word and obey it. Don't harden your heart against hearing what God is saying to you. But then some 1,000 years later, after the psalmist had written this psalm, the writer of the New Testament letter of the Hebrews quoted it in his letter to this young church. This church was experienced difficult times. They were wondering whether the Christian faith that they had responded to was all that was cracked up to be. It, it seems that they had doubts as to whether they had made the right decision in following Christ. With these people stay true? Would they turn their back? Would they go back to what they'd been? And the writer of the letter was fearful that this might happen, that these people might miss what God had for them in Christ. Would they finish well? Not if they made the same errors as Israel had made in the past when troubles came. And so the letter writer did what many preachers do and looked for an example from scripture that, that framed his thoughts. In Hebrews 3 and 4, he quoted the last part of Psalm 95. He believed that Psalm 95 provided a sombre warning for these young Christians in this new church. God's word to those struggling young Christians came to them in there today. It was used as encouragement to them to keep on keeping on. It was used as a warning to them not to turn back. Yes, the writer to the letter to the Hebrews assured his readers they'd experienced further trials, but remaining faithful to his God and his word meant eternal rest for eternity. The use of this passage in Hebrews underlines just how important its implications are. It warns us that our failure to hear is often deliberate, springing from lack of faith. And for us, 2022 is our today, some 2,000 years later. And there's a timeless urgency to this message. It comes to us and says, here's what God is saying. Don't harden your hearts, but hear God's word, hear God's voice today. It continues to be God's message to you and to me. 
If only you would listen to his voice today. Learn from what God said in, his, in earlier times to his people. Learn from the mistakes of the past. Listen to what God is saying to you through his word today. For worship involves listening and responding. I believe this psalm serves as a vivid challenge. A reminder not only to the writer's generation. A reminder not only to those in the early years of the Christian church but to God's people in every generation, to God's people in Melbourne in 2022. The abrupt ending challenges you and it challenges me. Will I harden my heart to God's word or will I bow down in worship? So what is the message of Psalm 95 to This generation in 2022, what is it to you and me in our today? I believe the writer is telling us that our united worship must have God at its centre. I believe he is telling us that our united worship should be exuberant and joyful. I believe he is telling us that together we should worship with respectful reverence. I believe he is reminding us that worship involves listening to God's word. I believe he is telling us that our worship must result in obedience as we hear, as we understand, and as we obey what God is saying. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word. Thank you that you have given to us examples of others. Thank you that those examples are there as an encouragement, but as also as a warning. We pray that we might hear, heed and obey what you have saying to us today. 